One of the most interesting things to me about uh, watching sports is this interesting phenomenon called the home field advantage or home court advantage, depending on, I guess, what sport you're talking about. And uh, it, it does make a difference. Teams do better at home. Sometimes it is magnified more than others. And one in particular that an area, one of the, the uh, pro sports leagues, at least, where you see it the most is in the NBA. And uh, one team in particular, the Denver Nuggets. Let me give you a little example. From 2009 to 2019, the Nuggets won 75.62% of their home games. They only won 46.52% of their away games. So quite a significant difference uh, home to away. Now, there are a lot of different um, thoughts about why that's the case. A lot of different theories, everything from, you know, being at home, sleeping in your own bed, being more rested, if the team is traveling, especially if they had a game maybe the night before and they're traveling overnight, obviously that would impact it. But here's one that I think, and sometimes people try to downplay this, but I think it's important, is there's something about being cheered on by a group of supporters that are behind you. And if you've ever been to a game or experienced this in some other avenue i mean there's just something about a momentum shift you know and people get excited and they're cheering them on and even professional athletes who are the best at what they do will tell you that they get a little boost from all that energy that comes from this crowd that is cheering them on and i was thinking about that today because as we get into hebrews chapter 12 we're going to see that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses and that was kind of one of the images that came to mind these people that are that are cheering us on in a sense but have been before us so let's start in Hebrews 12, verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And we're going to continue on with a few more verses here in a little bit, but let's just start out with that. And I want to begin with that idea of this great cloud of witnesses and be very clear about who we're talking about here. We're talking about those people in chapter 11. Last Sunday we jumped into that and, and uh, looked at a few of those examples. These are the men and women of faith who have gone before us. That is this great cloud of witnesses that have been there and have trusted God and have seen God do miraculous things. And it says that's a part of what should encourage us in our faith. Now let's be real clear about something here. It's not that we are trying to follow their example. It's not that I want to be like Noah or I want to be like Moses or I want to be like Abraham or Sarah or whoever is mentioned in Hebrews 11. That's not the point. The point is I want to follow God the way they did. I want to emulate their faith because these are men and women of faith. That's why they are held up as examples. Not that we're following them, but that we're being inspired by the faith that they, that they lived out and by their experience of seeing God's faithfulness. You see, when somebody's been down the road already and can say, hey, I've been there, this is what the experience was like, and they can testify to God's faithfulness and those kinds of things, then that is helpful. Now, I was thinking about that in terms of just paying attention even to people who have experienced something before I have, one of the things that I like to do, and I'm, I'm kind of a, uh, you know, maybe a little bit overboard sometimes, but I like to think things through. And if I'm going to make a purchase, I'm, I'm going to go somewhere, if I'm going to do something, I, I generally look at reviews and do a little bit of my own research and figure out what other people have to say about this because, you know, obviously you're going to get people on various ends of the spectrum. But if you're 
considering buying something and it has you know 4.4 out of 5 stars and there's a similar product and it has 1.9 out of 5 stars you're probably going to pay attention to that right probably going to say okay I'm going to listen to those who've been down this road before me have experienced this before me well in our faith it's not that we are you know raving god by any stretch of the imagination but but there is a sense in which people have experienced something and say hey look you can learn from what I have gone through and some of the ups and downs and things like that. And the point is to inspire faith in us. And so that's what this great cloud of witnesses is all about. But more importantly, what are we supposed to do? They, okay, we've got this great cloud of witnesses, great. So what do we do? Very clear. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. But before we can do that, it says that there's some things that need to happen. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So let's start there. Let's start by talking about if we want to run this race with perseverance, one of the things that we're going to need to do is we're going to need to get rid of the wrong stuff. Get rid of the wrong stuff. To throw off, or, or literally what that means is to set aside. Maybe you could have a mental image of this stuff that, that isn't helpful in running the race, getting it off and just putting it over to the side. Now, I'm going to set this down over here and I'm going to leave it here. And I'm not going to take this weight with me. I'm not going to take these extra things with me. And there are two things that he mentions. The first one, he says, is everything that hinders. That's a pretty broad term, isn't it? Everything that hinders, which could be, in today's world, I, I would just use the word distractions. What are those distractions this not necessarily sinful, we'll get to that in a minute, but not necessarily something that's wrong or sinful, but just, I mean, can you think of some things in your life that you're like, yeah, I can get distracted pretty easily by these things, and it keeps me from running this race with perseverance because there are just things, not necessarily wrong things, they're just things that can distract me. And I was thinking about that this morning. I'm, I was sitting in my tent, uh, part of my routine on Sunday mornings. I, you know, we get here and we have prayer time early before our first service. And I'll sit in my office and I'll look over my notes and just kind of review. I typically do that the day before as well. And, and then I'll just look over it again on Sunday morning. I was sitting in my office doing that this morning. And I, my mind was somewhere else. I'm thinking, what is wrong with me? Here I'm about to preach on, you know, not getting distracted. I was totally distracted. I had to refocus a little bit. But we need to be aware of that sometimes, don't we? And realize we can get so distracted by so many different things. What are those things that can distract you? Maybe good things, maybe family, uh, maybe hobbies, maybe screen time, uh, maybe concerns that you have. I mean, there are so many different things, right? They can just pull us away from really being focused. And so one of the things that we're told to get rid of is anything that hinders us. Sometimes it's just small stuff, right? Like this little incremental changes. I, I, was, I don't know why this came to mind. Maybe because I think it's just kind of weird because I'm not one of them. I understand it. But I was thinking about how competitive swimmers, they shave their entire bodies before they swim, right? And I, I guess for the ladies, that's not quite as weird. But the guys get out there and, and they're, they're, they've completely shaved their bodies. And I always kind of wondered about that I like you know why do they do that and I assumed you know is it really that much resistance if you have hair on your arms and you're trying to swim does it really slow you down that much and, and I guess when you're talking about you know hundreds of seconds it might make a difference but here's what I discovered as I looked into it a little bit it's not even so much about not creating an aerodynamic type thing it's about getting a better feel for the water and I say when you shave you actually remove the um, the dead layer of skin from the epidermis and so 
it's, it's, you feel fresher in the water. And so some of it is just, you know, you feel better, you can feel what you're doing and maybe feel faster and so whatever. But small things, right? Little, little incremental things that sometimes that, that we can do that do make a difference. And so anything that, that is a distraction, we're told to get rid of it. But then we're also told after that, and this is where it kind of starts to drill down a little bit more. Not only do we get rid of anything that hinders us, but it says the sin that so easily entangles. Now he's getting real specific. This is anything that is contrary to what God says. We said a moment ago that, that um, distractions can be things that aren't necessarily sinful. But there also are those things in our lives that maybe we just haven't dealt with, honestly. That, that are sinful things in our lives that just need to be dealt with. And those are things that sometimes we can try to hide. We can try to ignore. Um, but they, they entangle us. Isn't that a great mental image. You know what I thought about? You ever been out at night, maybe at dusk, walking through an area, uh, maybe with some trees or something, and you walk into a giant spider web? Anybody ever had that happen? Everybody's done that, right? You walk into a giant spider web, and what do you do when you walk in the spider web? You just stop, right? And you start doing like this, and you kind of get, you know, you're getting it off. Am I the only one that 30 minutes later, I feel like it's, is it still stuck in my hair? It's still on me. It's like, how do I get this thing off? It is so hard once you get entangled in that web to feel like you've totally broken free of it, right? That's what sin does, man. You get, you get in it. You get entangled in that web, and it's like, it's just so difficult to break free from that and to, to get, you know, it's just hard. It's just so, so very difficult. Well, that's why it's so important for us. It says not to, to go down that path. I mean, I, I think about this and, and think about the fact that it says, get rid of the sin that so easily entangles. The question is, what is the sin? Does he have one thing in mind? Is there like one magic sin that if we got rid of that, we'd all be okay? And no, that's not the idea at all. But here's the reality. What that sin is in my life, in your life, and all of us is probably different for every one of us. See, there's something for each of us or some things, probably multiple, would be multiple things, that we struggle with that, that tend to entangle us. And it's not the same for every one of us, but it's important for us to understand what that is. You know, it could be, uh, for, for some, it could be the sin of anger. It could be lust or some type of sexual sin it could be racial prejudice it could be greed it could be self-righteousness overeating a judgmental spirit i mean the list goes on and on and on what are those things that we tend to get entangled by and being aware of that and saying okay i, I understand what my issue is but now the next question is what do i do about it i mean it's one thing to be aware of it it's another thing to do something about it. Let me give you the good news and the bad news all at the same time. You can't do anything about it. That's both the good and the bad news. I'll start with why it's the bad news first. Because that means on our own we can't fix it. And we like to fix things. And we like to you know, think that I can improve myself or I can overcome this or I can do that, do this or do that. The truth is you can't fix it and I can't either. See, our sin is too much for us to handle. We, in our human nature, in our sinful nature, we are incapable of being able to overcome. We just are. Now, that's the bad news. But that bad news becomes good news when we realize 
that, that we can't handle it, but Jesus can. In fact, this is really what the gospel message is all about in the first place, is coming to an understanding that I am sinful, I am broken, I'm messed up. And so are you. All of us are. But I realize that I'm broken, that I can't get there, that I will never achieve God's standard because God's standard is perfection. And I'm very far from that. But Jesus is exactly that standard. Jesus is perfection. Jesus did live a perfect life and therefore was able to die in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. That's what the gospel message is. And if you've never come to grips with that, I want to encourage you to start there with a realization and an acknowledgement that I'm sinful and I need forgiveness. I'll never be good enough on my own, but Jesus is. And Jesus gave himself for you. And if you will just trust in him, Jesus said that the work that we are to do is to believe in the one that God has sent. That's it. And so we trust, we believe in Jesus. And he gives us new life and he forgives us. But the same is true when it comes to dealing with, uh, you know, the ongoing battle with sin as well is, I can't do that either. But through the power of God in me, I can be victorious. Can't be victorious in my own strength or my own ability, but Jesus in me and the Holy Spirit living in me, then I can. So that's why I say it's the bad news and the good news all at once is that you and I can't do it on our own. Now, even when we are attempting to live in the power of God, and even when we are attempting to live by faith, we're still going to mess up. We're still going to fall short. We're still going to sin. But that's where we claim the promise of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, if we're honest enough to confess and lay it before God, then we find that forgiveness, we find that cleansing, and it's important to do that on an ongoing basis. So I want to encourage you to start there. It could very well be that there are things going on in your life, that there's sin in your life that not a single soul in this world knows about. Something very private, something that you've been careful maybe to keep very private. We're never going to move forward until we get honest about that, until we acknowledge that sin in our lives and say, okay, God, I'm going to confess this to you. I need to put this before you and ask for you to cleanse me and change me, and I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn away from those things. See, the ultimate goal is that we want to run this race with perseverance, but you can't run with perseverance if you're all wrapped up in this tangled web. Think about a, like a giant fishnet or something, you know, just wrapped all around you. You're not going to be able to run very far that way. And the goal, ultimately, is to run with perseverance. Not, not just to run for a little while. Not to do what I used to do. I, I can't run at all anymore, unfortunately. But back when I occasionally would go for a jog, my problem was I'd start out way too fast, and I'd get tired really quick. Anybody ever do that? You know, I'm a tenth of a mile in. My side's already hurting, out of breath. I'm like, yeah, that's not real good. That's not the goal. The goal is to run with perseverance. But you sure can't run a race with perseverance if you're, if you're all tangled up. So... First thing we need to do is get rid of the stuff, whether that be distractions or sins in our lives. We need to get rid of the wrong stuff. And then look at what it says in verse 2. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's the next step, simple as it is. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. I want to talk about that for a minute. This one's really important. How do we stay, you know, how do we stay moving toward this path? How do we run this race with perseverance? It's only one way, and that is fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now that is not, guys, listen to me, that is not a chore. That is not a, something you have to do. Let me twist your arm and guilt you into stopping looking at the wrong stuff, start looking at Jesus. I want you to think about it like this. I want you to think about it, guys, 
you, if, you've, if you're married, you think back, or if you're not, think about maybe what that will be like at some point, if that day does come at some point down the road. But think about watching your bride walking down the aisle on that special day. And she's all, you know, in her beautiful dress and uh, everything. Hair looks great. Makeup looks great. She just looks wonderful. She looks beautiful. She's walking down the aisle. I suspect that when your bride was walking toward you down that aisle, that you didn't have to have your best man or the pastor or somebody say, hey, focus right there. You know, look at her. Stop, stop looking over here and having a conversation. You know, you're not talking to your buddies while she's walking down the aisle. When she comes down, it's like, wow. You're just, you're captivated by that, right? Her, her, her beauty and just everything about her. It's like, I mean, you just can't take your eyes off of her. See, that's, that's the image. Fixing our eyes on Jesus isn't something that we have to be guilted into doing. It's something that if we see his beauty, if we see his majesty, if we really come to understand him as he is, it'll be like, wow, I can't take my eyes off of him. My eyes are just fixed on him because of who he is. I mean, look at, look at the way he's described here. He's described as the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Some translations, the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus is the one who, who initiates our faith in the first place. He's the beginning or the author or the pioneer. He's the one who has done everything for us so that by faith we could have a relationship with him. It's not that, that he was waiting for us to take the initiative or if we finally got this right or got that right. It's that in our sinfulness, he came and died for us. He gave himself for us. And, and even the ability to trust in him, the Bible tells us that no one comes to God unless God draws that person to him. And so he even draws us into relationship. Now, yes, we have to respond to that, but he's done everything. Jesus on the cross, his last words, it is what? It's finished. It's all been done. And so he initiates everything. But not only does he initiate it, but he continues to to sustain our faith as well. It's not that we come into a relationship with God by faith in Christ and then we're all on our own to work it out from there. No, he continues to give us strength. He continues to fill us with what we need. So he's both the, the author and the perfecter of our faith. That's one of the reasons that, it would, that we should be captivated by him. Our eyes should be on him. But then it also tells us for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I mean, think about that. Meditate on that a little bit, what Jesus endured, scorning its shame, not just the physical aspect of it, but all that went along with it. And then it says he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I mean, who wouldn't want to have our eyes fixed on Jesus, saying he's at the right hand of the throne? Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There again, that consider him. It's kind of the same idea you know, of fixing our eyes on Jesus, being captivated by him and what he has done. That's the goal. Unfortunately, though, to go back to the analogy of a moment ago, the marriage analogy, sometimes we take our eyes off of where they need to be focused. If, if that man was captivated by his bride as she was walking down the aisle, unfortunately, sometimes later on in that relationship, his eyes can get removed from her or her eyes can get removed from him and, and they can be captivated by somebody else. And when that happens, there's incredible pain. And there's just devastation that comes with that. And it doesn't mean that you can't be restored. That it does happen and God can do that. But there's just incredible pain that comes from that. How does that happen? 
in almost every situation. It's not that one day he's just captivated or she is captivated by, by their spouse and then all of a sudden the next day they just you know, jump into this affair with somebody else. It doesn't work that way. What happens is their eyes get taken off of the one that they should be focused on and, and because their, defi- their, their attention is diverted somewhere else, now it can be captured over here by somebody else. It's exactly what happens when we begin to slip away from fixing our eyes on Jesus. When other things grab our hearts and when we're captivated by things that we should not be captivated by, it's because we have lost our first love. It's because we have, have not fixed our, our gaze on Jesus. We've forgotten who He is and just how incredible He is because if we remembered, we'd never want to take our eyes off of Him. When we grasp that reality, um, we want to do that. Now, it's important for us to have that foundation in order for us to understand what we're about to read as we continue on in verse 4. It says, In your struggle against sin, you, do not, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have, completely, have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. Then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Here's the last main idea for you today, and that is to be encouraged by God's discipline. You may hear that say, what are you talking about? Be encouraged by God's discipline. That's what it says. Did you notice that? It says, if you've forgotten this word of encouragement. Now, when I think of a word of encouragement, that's not the first thing that I think of. You know, somebody comes and says, hey, I got a word of encouragement for you today. God's going to discipline you. It's like, wait a minute, that's not very encouraging. But it is, actually, if we understand it properly. Why is this a word of encouragement for us? Well, first of all, I think we need to understand that discipline is not always a negative thing. When you think of discipline, any of you remember back in the day uh, when you when you get swats in school if you got out of alignment? You know, anybody wish you still could? No, don't raise your hand over there. And, you know, that that was uh, that was not pleasant for those that endured that. Now I'm gonna tell you, I actually never did get swats at school. But the reason I did is because I was scared flat to death. I did not have the courage. I didn't think to be able to handle that. And so I'm like, I'm gonna walk that straight and narrow because I don't want to go down there. But when you think about discipline and God's discipline, a lot of times that's probably what we think of, right? That that just oh, this is horrible. Fear, don't mess up, or it's gonna be painful. And the truth is, there is some pain that comes with discipline. I mean, that's what, the, that's what this passage is saying to us. It is not pleasant at the time. It's painful. But here's, here's the important other side to that is remembering, as it says in verse 10, that God disciplines us for our good. God disciplines us for our good. And, and it gives this example of earthly parents. Parents discipline their children for the, you know, the best that they know how, right? We attempt to do it for their good. 
That's the purpose. That's the goal. But I can think of times as a parent myself where I didn't discipline when I should have. I can think of times where I did discipline when I shouldn't have. I can think of times where I did it maybe out of anger or with the wrong spirit. See, there are a lot of times that I did not do it right. But God always does it right. That's, that's what he's saying. Look, you know, you respect your earthly parents for disciplining you, and they're just doing the best they can, but they're, they're still going to fail. God, on the other hand, always, always disciplines us for our good. And so that should be encouraging to us. It's encouraging because it reminds us that God cares enough, that God loves us enough to discipline us. He hasn't given up on us. He hasn't forgotten about us. It's not that he's just thrown his hands up in the air, but, but he does have a very specific purpose. Now, verse 7, look at verse 7. Because the question then becomes, how do I know when I'm receiving God's discipline? And I want to encourage you in this, to not always think of that as something that happens to you because you've done something wrong. See, there, there, think about disciplines in your life that, that are good things. It's not necessarily just because you've done something wrong. I mean, things like you know, exercise and healthy eating and getting enough sleep and you know, spending time with God and memorizing scripture and spending time in prayer and serving and giving. And there's, there's just this ongoing list of disciplines in our lives. It doesn't necessarily mean punishment all the time, okay? Discipline is something that is difficult and can be painful at times, but it makes us stronger. It makes us better. It improves us in some way. And so in verse 7, it says, endure hardship as discipline. Now, are you saying to me, Pastor, that God is going to bring hardship in my life on purpose? That's exactly what I'm saying, because that's what the Scripture says. There are times where God brings difficult things into our lives for the purpose of helping refine us. It is something that we should receive as discipline. Maybe because we're out of alignment and need to get back in alignment, but maybe not. Maybe it's just part of the development process. You see this notion that, that oh, you know, God, because God is loving and kind and good, God would never bring anything bad and he just wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy and prosperous and, you know, you're never going to be sick, you're never going to have a problem. That's nonsense. We, we don't see that in scripture. What we see are, are the godly people who are struggling and they're, they're going through all kinds of opposition. We see Jesus himself, as we've looked at here, you know, going to the cross and scorning its shame and all that goes along with that. There's nothing in Scripture that would, that would lead us to believe that God's never going to bring difficult things into our lives. Now, when that happens, I understand wanting to get out of it. But we've been in a season for a while. I'm like, I'm ready to be done with this. I'm ready to move on to something else. And so there's nothing wrong with feeling that way, but at the same time understanding when I am in the middle of that, that God is doing something here, that God is working, and we view those things as discipline and we view that pain as something that has a great purpose that God is at work and so that's when we get encouraged you know that's when it becomes a word of encouragement is when we understand it from that perspective and when we understand where it's going verse 11 no discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful later on however it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it anybody that sound good to anybody to have a harvest of righteousness and peace in your life. That sounds good to me. We need more of that. And, and the way you get there 
is through this process of God disciplining his children. You know, think about a harvest. A harvest doesn't just, you, you don't just walk out one day and say, hey, I'm going to reap a harvest. You have to put the work in. Things have to be done on the front end. And it starts by tilling up the soil. It starts by breaking up the hard pieces. That's a violent process. If the dirt could talk, I'm sure it would talk about how painful that process is when it gets all broken up like that. That's where it starts. Then you plant the seed. You water the seed. You, know, you, you, you do what's necessary to protect it. You give it time. Even if you tool the, the soil and, and put seeds in and water it, you still can't go out next week and reap a harvest. It takes time for those things to develop. And the same is true for us. It takes time for us to be able to reap the harvest. But the harvest is coming. And so that's where we find our encouragement. It's just in that reminder that in all the things that God is doing and all the difficulties that we go through, and it is a challenge sometimes for us to do what we're told to do, to get rid of that stuff, to, to set aside those things. We don't sometimes want to give them up. You know, the reason sin is such a problem is because we love it. We don't want to lay it aside. But, but to be willing to do that and those distractions, to put that aside, to, to keep our, our focus on Jesus, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, to endure this discipline that God brings our way, eventually it's going to lead to a harvest of, of righteousness and a harvest of peace in our lives. And so I just want to encourage you with that today. Wherever you may find yourself, maybe you find yourself in a very difficult season right now, but just know that, that, that God is doing something in that and that God does have a greater purpose and you can be encouraged by knowing that, that he is working through all of that and he is going to bring peace and he's going to bring righteousness in your life as a result. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today to submit our hearts before you and ask today, Lord, that you would give us peace. That you would give us uh, righteousness. But Lord, we know that that is a process. So help us when we are still in the process of you doing that work. Maybe if we're not ready to reap the harvest just yet, Lord, help us to continue on. Help us to pursue you. I pray more than anything, Lord Jesus, that we are captivated by you. And as a result, just can't take our eyes off of you. In your precious name we pray. Amen.